All right. Amen. We're doing things a little bit uh, different order this morning, so you know how you fall into one of those rhythms and just do things the way you've always done them. We're mixing them up a little bit. Um, hello, my name is Shannon. I'm a sinner. Try that one more time. Hello, my name is Shannon. I'm a sinner. Good to be together. Uh, not proud of the fact that I'm a sinner, but I take great comfort in the knowledge that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world so that sinners like me, and maybe you also, might be forgiven and reconciled to God, uh, filled with God's spirit and empowered to follow God's way into his kingdom and to live a life of abundance and joy and hopefully with gratitude. Thanks be to God. We're continuing the study this morning with our study of the gospel of Mark and news the end is in sight. <laughs> Believe it or not, we are just one week away from the end of our study of the Gospel of Mark after more than a year and a half. And I know that some of you are cheering inside, and some of you probably cheering outside as well. That's okay. But congratulations to those of you who have stuck with us through this uh, journey. Uh, I applaud you and hope it's been a good experience for you. It has been for me. Uh, to complete this journey, though, will require uh, a little bit of intense work, not just today, but also on Thursday, uh, what we call Holy Thursday, and this Friday, which we call Good, uh, as well as uh, next Sunday on Easter, where we'll actually finish up the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're getting close. I encourage you, if you can, to participate in those services here in the sanctuary, or if not, then by live stream. This morning in the Gospel of Mark, we're rewinding a little bit. It's back to chapter 11, the first 11 verses of chapter 11 in Mark's Gospel, which we jumped over last November so that we could look at those verses specifically this morning. These are the verses in the little passage that is most often celebrated on Palm Sunday. So today is Palm Sunday, so hopefully that all works out well. You remember how things got to this point in the Gospel of Mark? You remember in Mark's Gospel how Jesus began his public ministry in his home area, Galilee, around Capernaum and Nazareth, and how he went from there in his public ministry to the west, your west, your left, and then up into the north, uh, to the areas of Tyre and Sidon, and then over to the areas of the Decapolis across the Sea of Galilee, uh, ministering again in the areas of Galilee, and then down through Perea uh, to the east, uh, eventually heading to Jerusalem, where he arrives on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. This passage before us this morning at the beginning of chapter 11 recounts Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem and everything that comes after this passage in Mark's gospel happens during the handful of days between Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem and the day of his execution on Friday. So all of the passages of Scripture in Mark's gospel that we've looked at over the last five weeks, five and a half weeks, over the course of Lent, Jesus cursing a fig tree, his cleansing, so-called cleansing of the temple, his authority being questioned, Jesus' parable of the tenants in a vineyard that John talked about, the Pharisees and Herodians, and then the Sadducees and others challenging Jesus about paying taxes and other things, about marriage and the resurrection, about all of the other questions that are put to Jesus to try to trap him. The confrontations with Jesus, the conversations with Jesus, and Jesus' words about many future and yet-to-come things, as well as looming judgment. 
All of those things happened in Mark's gospel. After what we know as Palm Sunday, his entrance into Jerusalem, his celebrated entrance, and before his crucifixion during that four or five day period. And so you see that fully one third of Mark's gospel is committed to the last week of Jesus' life. One third of Mark's gospel is committed to the last week of Jesus' life. Chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and chapter 16, which records Jesus' resurrection as the last chapter in Mark's gospel, cover just the last week of Jesus' life. Some people, when they sort of stand back and think about the scriptures and especially the gospels in the New Testament, they wonder why so little of Jesus' first 30 years of life are discussed or covered. Only Matthew and Luke mention Jesus' birth at all. Uh, Matthew talks about Jesus' little excursion as a toddler with Mary and Joseph into Egypt. Luke gives reference to Jesus when he was 12 years old in the temple. But other than that, everything starts when Jesus is 30 years old. But not even uh, that imbalance are the Gospels. In addition to focusing on the last three years or so and the public ministry of Jesus' life, a full third of Mark's Gospel, similarly in other Gospels, is committed to this last week of his life. And so the attention of the world hones in not so much on 30 years or even three years, but on one week in human history. And that's where we are uh, this morning as we uh, turn to chapter 11. Uh, center stage, if you will, is this week in Jerusalem. In world history, in cosmic perspective, this week is what it's all about. So uh, before we jump into the scriptures, pray with me one more time. God, with all these things in mind, help us to see what matters, what matters most. Help us to put what we're about to read into perspective to understand. We ask that uh, beyond knowledge that you would increase in us faith and devotion and love through what we read, learn, and acquire. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that are good soil. Fill us and help us by your spirit. I pray that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate or are inconsistent in any way with your word, may they be quickly and immediately and forever forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So Mark chapter 11, uh, beginning at verse 1, listen closely. This is the word of God. Not just to us, but the word of God. As they approached Jerusalem, Jesus and his closest disciples. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany, these two little villages on the outskirts of Jerusalem, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. And for those of you who are city folks like me, a colt is simply an animal, in this case, usually a horse or a donkey or a mule, but an animal that's four years old or less. That's what a colt is if you're a city folk. Uh, you will find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are doing this, say, the Lord, kurios is the word, and it can mean uh, sir, uh, sir, it can mean master, or it can mean God. Say, tell them the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. 
They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, Jesus sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed those in front and those in back, shouted, Hosanna, which means save, and had become an exclamation of also praise. Hosanna, save, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. And this picks up where we were six weeks ago. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany, where he was staying with the twelve. And Mark, in his usual brevity, keeps things pretty simple. What details Mark offers are around the cult, which we learned in John's gospel is the cult of a donkey. And then many people, Mark talks about, sort of rolling out a red carpet, as it were, for Jesus. And then the specific words that those many people shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting the Psalms. And that's about it. Jesus goes straight to the temple where activity for the day seems to be waning. Things seem to be winding up for the day, wrapping up for the evening, closing down for the night. There's no electricity, so it's really a place where activity happens during daylight. And, it's, and it was this, as if Jesus must have, or it seems like maybe got a late start, maybe lost track of time, maybe got stuck in holiday traffic, right? Because he sort of shows up there and goes, huh, where is everybody? Everyone's leaving. The place is empty. I think I'll come back tomorrow. But Jesus had had his parade. And that seemed to be what counted that day. He had had his parade. Was it really, though, a parade? Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is often portrayed like a parade, especially to children, and why not? Everyone loves a parade. When I was a kid, until I was 10, I lived in a small town in South Texas. And what do you do in a small town in South Texas? There's corn, there's cattle, the local football team has five home games a year. Those were big. And then there's a rodeo each fall. But other than that, what do you do in a small town? They love a parade in small towns. You get together the fire truck and a few horses and maybe the Cub Scout troop and maybe the homecoming queen from the previous year. And maybe you get the sheriff to bring his car out and the armory on the edge of town brings a military vehicle of some sort. And boy, you've got a parade. It's bonus material if the Shriners show up with their little cars and do the figure eight. I don't know if anyone's ever seen those. Anyone ever seen those? Anyone grow up in a small town? Yeah, that was it. That was the highlight of the parade when I was a kid. Uh, when we were 10, my family moved to San Antonio, a much bigger city, who has this thing called Fiesta, which is just wrapping up today, actually, this nine-day celebration. And San Antonio also loves parades. Fiesta over nine days has many parades, this uh, big Battle of Flowers parade up on the screen being the largest of those and the fourth largest parade in the country. But they're not satisfied with just that one parade that 250 people come out of the woodwork and sweat all day to watch. They also have a parade on the river, 
with all the tourist barges get decked out and everyone comes out. They've got a parade called the Flambeau Parade, which is just a rewind of the Battle of Flowers Parade, except at night. And the same 250,000 people came back from mostly the same floats. It's amazing. People love parades. Some of you have been to Mardi Gras parades. Yes, show of hands. Yeah, oh, just a few. Oh, <laughs> wow, all right. Uh, Macy's Day Thanksgiving Parade, New York City. Anyone been to that in person? How many of you have watched that on Thanksgiving morning? Most of us, exactly. Chinese New Year Parade in San Francisco, the largest, Chin the largest Chinese New Year Parade outside of China and the world. How many of us have been to that multiple times and wish that we'd have brought earplugs? <laughs> and then there are military parades too, not so much in the United States, but in places like North Korea, maybe China and Russia. Yeah, people love parades. But Jesus' so-called triumphal entry wasn't really like any of those events. Nor did it have such a purpose. Instead, Jesus' intentional entry into Jerusalem points to several other kinds of things and reveals still others. First, nothing happens by accident with Jesus. As is the case throughout all of the Gospels, and especially Mark's Gospel, with Jesus, nothing is unexpected, despite Jesus sort of seeming, seeming a little surprised by the lack of people in the temple that evening. But be clear about this. Jesus or his Father is dictating everything. Every action, every event, every coming, every going. There are no surprises. Jesus directs two of his disciples to a village near Jerusalem on the outskirts of Jerusalem, he gives them very specific instructions about a very particular animal, which in this case is a colt, the colt of a donkey, which has never been ridden. Next, Jesus fulfills prophecy. Entering Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus fulfills prophecy found in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, written more than 500 years before Jesus' time, which reads like this in verse nine of chapter nine. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's number two. Jesus, very specifically in this particular entrance, is fulfilling that and other prophecy. That's number two. Number three, Jesus is king. And this, of course, was over and against the Roman emperor, um, emperor or King Tiberius who required absolute allegiance. And so there are things that are butting heads behind the scenes here because Jesus is portraying himself coming into this capital city of sorts in a royal way. But Jesus was not king just of Jerusalem, he was saying, or king just of Israel, or king of just the Jewish people, or king of even just the Roman Empire, but king of all people. and all of creation, and all things. As I said a few moments ago, what was happening with this donkey in this quiet corner of the Roman Empire, and this rabbi who was sort of just a, an unusual and enchanting and repelling and charismatic and attractive figure all rolled into one, has cosmic significance. 
Jesus as king, the king, whom few yet recognized, was moving toward his, again, countercultural, unexpected to the world, coronation, on which would be placed, on, on his head which would be placed a crown, not of gold, but of thorns. The donkey on which Jesus rode was, oh, Jesus is going to be not, not only a king, but a different kind of king, an unexpected king. As the video we watched at the beginning of the worship service said that showed this morning, Jesus came not to bring justice to our enemies, but justice in the midst of our enemies. I don't know if you heard that. Jesus came not just to bring justice to our enemies, but justice in the midst of our enemies, righteousness in the midst of our enemies. He came to not declare war, but to declare and enact peace, a sort of peace. The donkey on which Jesus rode was more than just a means of transportation. It was particularly in Old Testament Jewish and ancient world thinking, a sign and symbol of peace. Warrior kings, when they came into a town, rode these huge majestic steeds, stallions, that conveyed strength and power and dominance and force. Jesus didn't do any of that and he didn't need any of that. One day in the book of Revelation, he may come in that way. But on this day, on that day, in this context, for this purpose, Jesus comes not with a sword but in peace to bring peace between peoples, within peoples, between humanity and God between neighbors, between nations, yes. And then number five, the people shouted, save us, save us, and Jesus would, and Jesus will. But Jesus would save them, not so much or not necessarily from the Romans, or today the Russians, or the West, or the communists, or the Nazis, or Al-Qaeda, or ISIS, or whoever, but he would come to save from temptation and from evil and from condemnation and from sin and from ourselves. Save us. And Jesus would not only save them, us, the world from, but also save to prepositions matter. He would save them and us to God and for God and for God's pleasure and for God's delight reconciling wayward children to their father, reconciling creation to their, it's our creator. To those who believed, he would give the right to become true children of God. And then there's the matter of the crowd. What do we make of the crowd? Who was the crowd? Who made up the many people in the crowd? Who was in the crowd? in addition to Jesus' closest disciples. And we have to ask, I have to ask, because four days later, people were walking away from Jesus, right and left, fading into the shadows. One of Jesus' team even betraying Jesus. One of his inner, inner circle even denying that he even knew Jesus. And by the morning on the Friday, we ironically call good, Jesus was all alone. The closest thing he had to an advocate was Pilate. No one 
by his side, no one standing with him, no one standing for him, no one taking up his cause. And the crowd, a crowd, the same people shouting again, crucify him, crucify him. And how fickle we human beings can be. How shallow our commitments and loyalties. Fear and disappointment, uncertainty and fear can do funny things to people. Unfortunate things to people. Terrible things to people. Causing people like me and maybe you to cave, to crater, to collapse, to give in or to give up our convictions and to cower in corners. Oh, not us, we may be saying. Maybe Judas, that slimy, low-life Judas, as he was eventually revealed to be. But not us. Maybe Peter, petulant Peter. Or the rest of the disciples. And the confused and fickle and maybe manipulable people in the crowd. But not us. Right? Never. And this is the other side of Palm Sunday. This is the back side of Palm Sunday. This is the dark side of Palm Sunday. That most people miss when they jump from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, when they jump over chapters 14 and 15, when they jump over Holy Thursday and Good Friday and simply go from chapter 13 to chapter 16 in Mark's Gospel from prophecies about the end and eschatology to resurrection. But Mark doesn't do that. Someone interestingly has at this point compared and contrasted the cult of a donkey with the disciples of Jesus. That cult of a donkey with even these disciples of Jesus. The cult was born with a purpose. The colt, that colt, had never been ridden. That colt that was tied up there and unbeknownst to itself and to those standing near and maybe its own owner, that colt was born with a purpose. That colt was born with a mission. That colt had a calling. Can you say that about a colt? I don't know. I just did. That colt had a calling. And that colt fulfilled its calling. By nature, donkeys don't ask to be ridden. They have to be broken. They have to go through a process or training in which, during which, by which they learn to submit, they learn to obey, they learn to become compliant and maybe even agreeable, maybe even cooperative, maybe even helpful. They call that process breaking. The animals or the spirit's will or self-determination, or selfishness. It's a process. After three years of walking with Jesus, learning with Jesus, being trained, schooled, mentored, taught by Jesus, having been told the way, shown the way, taught the way, in several short days, Judas, Peter, and pretty much all of the men, everyone except a few women, were bucking Jesus. 
if you will. That week in Jerusalem, Jesus' disciples' obedience and compliance and mission fulfillment was surpassed by that of a donkey. You see it. And where might that leave us? Some of us. All of us, me. Hello, my name's Shannon. I'm a sinner. Not proud of that fact, but I readily acknowledge it. And I want to leave sin behind, and I want sin not to be a part of my life, and I want it to be pushed out of my heart, and my mind, and my spirit, and my activity, and my commitments, and my values, and my words, and my actions. But as the Apostle Paul said, it's all around me. And again, Jesus knew nothing about Judas or Peter or anyone else or you or me surprised Jesus ever, ever. And yet Jesus loved, God loves, despite us, despite us. And God calls us a little like he did that donkey to carry loads and to bear burdens and to fulfill missions and to live into one's calling. And he says, you can do this. I'll give you my spirit. He will help. You've fallen down. You can get up again. I will help you. I still have a mission and purpose and calling for you. God had already taken into account my stupidity when he called me to the things to which he called me. Say that again. God had already taken into account my stupidity when he called me to the things to which he called me. He's already taken into account your weaknesses, transgressions, history, stuff, baggage. When he's called you also to your mission, to your acts of mercy, to the people he's calling you to love, to the things he's calling you to do, to the way he's called you to help bring him into his kingdom as he wills. God called a donkey for a really important task. If God could, would, did call a donkey, he certainly could, might call me and you. To obedience, to sacrifice, to service, to ministry, to mission, to mercy, and to love. Is there an amen in the house? The passage of scripture about Jesus long awaited and for some celebrated entry into Jerusalem the political, social, cultural, and spiritual center of the Jewish people certainly begins with some fanfare, though it will get difficult quickly, messy quickly, surprising quickly, violent quickly, shocking quickly, horrifying eventually. This passage, though it will get difficult, is also one in which there is joy and hope, that which begins with praise and gratitude and celebration and worship eventually gets to something else. And it calls us into a sort of contemplative sobriety that we not go the eventual way of Jesus' disciples in the crowd and that our response to Jesus' call not be surpassed by that of a donkey. Lord have mercy. And so we come with praise. We come into the space, we come together, we come before the Lord, we come to this table with praise, but also with humility, because we know who we are. 
we know how we are. We know the betrayal and the denial of which we too are capable. And we know also about God's grace and we know about the God of grace. The God who in Jesus Christ loves us exactly the way we are because we'll never be as we should be. God loves you exactly the way you are because and not waiting for you to become who you might be because you never will completely. God loves us as we are, not as we should be, because we will never be who we should be. And yet Jesus, on his donkey, receiving that praise, knowing what was ahead, going into the fire, still loves his disciples. Let's pray. We are, God, we confess, wayward people, fickle people, sometimes confused people. We say one thing and we do another. We want this, but we also want this. We're torn, we're sometimes ambivalent. We get up on certain days and high with praise. And other days we just turn and walk away and fade into the darkness rather than following you. We put down our palm branches. Help us to lift them up again. By your mercy, by your grace, according to your sovereign will and goodness, have mercy on us. Fill us with your spirit. Unite us with one another in Christ. Unite us with you. Save us from ourselves. Save us from the world. Save us from sin. Save us from condemnation. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And save us to yourself that you might have great delight and pleasure, that you might be glorified, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.